with a microphone. Okay, thank you all for coming forward. I really appreciate that. That makes it all so much easier. Um, can you all understand me, first of all? Yes? Thumbs up, even in the back? Even in the back? Excellent. That's great. So, uh, first of all, my name is uh, Jonathan Gruber, and I'm from the Radio Netherlands Training Center. And the thing that I would like to, to speak with you about is storytelling the news. Now, it said in the description pamphlet that you got that it was tell me a story. It's the same thing. Only because we're radio people, because so many of us work in the news industry, uh, I would like to talk about why I feel narrative and storytelling is the most powerful way to deliver information to people. It's the most powerful way to get people to care about the news, to care about the story that you are in fact telling. I mean, how many of us here work in radio or media of any kind? Yeah? How many of us here work in the news industry or the spoken word radio industry? Like that. Okay, great. And even if you don't work in the news or the spoken word industry, let's say you work in television. Let's say you work in, in film. You want people to watch what it is that you're doing, not just because you think it's important, but you also want them to think it's important. You also want whatever it is that you have created, that you've worked on, that you've crafted, you want it to matter to them. Most of the time when we do the news, we're all familiar with the way it works. Who worked the news? Who raised your hand? When you, when you do the news, what's the most important information that you have to get? The most current. Breaking news. Contains what information? Size. Call in the first. I already just did it, didn't I? I just jumped up and grabbed the mic. Okay, I apologize. Yeah. People, right? But the information that you have at the top of the news in the first paragraph, when you read a news story or you're listening to a news uh, bulletin, contains what? Facts. What? How do we describe those facts? Who? What? Where? When? Why? How? Right? Now, all of those things absolutely matter. You can't dismiss them out of hand. Right? You are giving people information. The problem is involved in information in that manner. Who, what, where, why, when, and how, that kind of information absolutely matters. And studies have shown that when we take in information for the news, some of that goes in and most of it goes out, and then we're on to the next story, and we don't really care. However, if you give people that same kind of information, if you give it to them in the form of a story, if you give it to them in the form of a human being who is experiencing something, who has gone through something, whose life has been changed somehow by the events of that news story, suddenly we relate. Suddenly we care. And the reason why we relate and we care is because we're empathetic people and because telling stories is the thing that human beings have done since before time began, since we were all sitting around fires keep the animals away from us. This is the way that we shared information. It's the way that we made contact with each other. And it's still the way we do that. And in fact, the way that we do the news industry now is actually, it's relatively new. It's kind of strange, actually. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't do news. We absolutely should do news. 
It's a very quick way of getting information across to people. But if you want people to care, if you want it to matter, if you want to create intimacy, you have to tell them the story. So where I work at uh, the Radio Netherlands Training Center, uh, the first thing that we teach people before we even teach them how to do interviews or we teach them how to make radio programs or TV programs, the very first thing that we do is we teach people a method of storytelling, uh, a way that we feel always works. It's always a powerful way of telling a story. We've sort of jotted it out in, in a systematic way. So I only have 40 minutes to tell you guys how we do this, right? So the central question of this is can I, at the end of 40 minutes, can I actually teach you our method? And the climax of that will be I have either succeeded or I have failed. And telling you that the central question of the day is that I have to teach you guys how to do this and the climax is that you will either have learned it or not have learned it is already two of the six points that you need to tell a really good story. Every good story, a powerful story, has a central question, an overriding question, question that if you don't get the answer to that, you will be severely disappointed. Whenever you go and you watch a movie and somebody's being chased around by the serial killer, will will the serial killer get the victim or not? And if you don't find out the answer to that question, you've been to a lousy movie. Right? Okay. So that's going to happen in the climax. So um, let me just tell you before I move on a little bit about what it is we're doing. So that's, that's me. I'm Jonathan coordinator. I'm a senior trainer at the Radio Netherlands Training Center. We're located in Hilversum in the Netherlands. And uh, we say that we train media professionals to master the art of the media. We focus on journalism, persuasive storytelling, change, and we do this in learning by doing. Now the advertisement is over. <laughs> and uh, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to play for you uh, two videos. And this video, these two videos are actually two news videos that tell exactly the same story in totally different ways. And I, will, I would do this if my technician person hadn't run off on me to play the video. Where's my technician guy? So while uh, we're finding our, our technician, can you do it? Yeah, it's video number one. It's not in this presentation. It's video number one. Right? Let's see if we can find it. Yeah, video number one, please. And, and stay. Stay. Thank you. So, four right. decades after the end of Cambodia's so civil war, landmines still plague the country. By some estimates, more than a million okay. mines are still in the ground, we and they killed over a hundred people That's in 2013. But a new ally, the rat, is joining the fight against landmines. Four decades after the end of Cambodia's civil war, landmines still plague the country. By some estimates, more than a million mines are still in the ground, and they killed over a hundred people in 2013. But a new ally, the rat, is joining the fight against landmines. The Cambodian Mine Action Center is training 15 Gambian-pouched rats to sniff out the TNT in the devices. I strongly believe that when we put these rats out to detect the landmines, that it makes our demining operation faster and so reduces rapidly the danger from mines exploding because the rats work a lot faster than humans, five to six times faster. 
Rats can cover 100 square meters in less than 20 minutes, while it would take a human deminer four to five days. Handlers begin training their demining partners when the rats are just one month old. They are sent to Cambodia from Tanzania by the Belgian non-profit group Apopo. When I came here, I watched how my supervisor trained the rats, and now I can train them to sniff the air or run around an object or mine. When a rat correctly identifies a mine by scent, it scratches the ground and gets rewarded with a tasty banana. In addition to working fast, they also don't weigh enough to set off any explosions. Until all the landmines are found and cleared, these furry creatures will be an important part of the demining team, saving lives and limbs. Maya Pajara, VOA News, Washington. Okay, so let's get the, the other one going. Let's get number two going. What did everybody think of that? What did you think of that back here? You just walked in, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, no, but what did you think? It was interesting. Um, I kept. I was feeling sorry for them until the last bit when they said... It's early morning, die. and Mandy is boarding the bus for her regular story journey bus. to the training fields. But today, she has a big test ahead to see if she's ready to join an elite team on a mine-clearing mission to Mozambique. In the past, dogs have been used for mine detection, but African pouch rats like Mandy have distinct advantages. Mandy and Chums have spent several months in laboratories tuning their noses to the smell of TNT, the explosive in landmines. Having completed this stage, they put their nose to the test in the field on a series of courses designed to stretch their mine-sniffing capabilities. We use three meter, and we call it contamination, uh, whereby we use iron, iron casings. So we put them down in the field. They are three meter wide, that's why we call them three meter. Then the lat when is used with that system, then the lat goes to five meter. The distance from each landmines is much further to make the lat work more to get to find the landmines. They are like humans. Some of them they are good, some they are not good. So they're different capabilities. Mandy is one of the rat school's high achievers. Most take about a year to train, but she has made it to the final test in a mere eight months. Yeah, the rats have to do a few hundred square meters containing, let's say, five, six, seven mines, and they're not allowed to miss one mine. When they miss one mine, they cannot operate on the minefield. Today, nine real landmines have been hidden. Mandy will have to find them with 100% accuracy. Guided by a search string which is connected between her two trainers, Mandy moves systematically up and down the course, processing lane by lane. Every time she sniffs a mine, she scratches the surface at the spot. Weighing less than five kilograms, she's too light to set off the explosive device. And when she indicates a mine, she gets what she's in it for, a click followed by a reward. With nine mines to find, that's a lot of bananas to eat. And as Mandy's ever-expanding pouches show, she's doing rather well. Finally, when Mandy's cheeks can take no more banana, the test is over. 
she has passed with flying colours and will head to Mozambique on a mine-clearing mission. So, loaded question, which story did you like better? The second one, we all agree. The question is, why did you like the second story better? Why did we like the story about Mandy better? Well, in, in the first one, it felt very rigid and very sort of boom, boom, boom. Whereas the second one sort of gave the, gave the rat almost like a personalized, personalized feel to it. There was a character in that story. There was a character in the story, and the character was a rat named Mandy. I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, oh, okay, maybe I can do better, but, but Mandy looks good, you know? <laughs> you mean you've been out demined by the rat? <laughs> okay, that's great. So what was, remember when I came in, I said there was a central question, a question that had to be answered, right? Any good story contains a central question. What was the central question to this story? Does anybody? Yes. Uh, will Mandy pass her mining test? Will Mandy pass her mining exam? And every good story has another aspect to it, not just a central question, but the place where that question has answered. I call that the climax of the story, right? And then there were other elements of the story that were very important, that made this story matter, that made you care about what is essentially a new story, right? It's about rats learning to, to uh, identify landmines in a, in a uh, post-war country. What other aspects to this story were there? You had the fact that Mandy maybe could fail this test. And obstacles were placed in Mandy's way. These are called steps of rising tension or steps of increasing tension, right? Maybe she's gonna get it, maybe she's gonna fail. Lots of rats fail this test. If the rats fail the test, they go back to being rats somewhere. I don't know what happens to Gambian pouch rats that fail their landmine tests, I'm going to assume nothing good, right? She had obstacles placed in front of her. Were they going to run out of bananas? I just made that part up, right? So you have to have somewhere between your central question, the question that must be answered in the climax, and the climax, the part that answers the central question, steps of increasing tension. So now I think it's time to introduce you to how we teach this part. If this works. It is not working. All right. All right. So let me take you to this part. So here's your, here's your bog standard graph, right? Here, along this line, the vertical line, you have tension rising. Every good story has a rise in tension. Over on the bottom part, we have the passage of time. As time passes, tension rises. And every story arc, you hear story arcs being talked about, plot arcs or things like that, when you, when you hear about stories, this is a literal story arc right in front of you, should more or less look something like this. Tension is rising as time passes. As time passes, events occur. What happens next? What happens next? And then the next thing that happened, and because of that, something else happened. Has anybody ever heard of the Pixar pitch? 
No? Why are, is every single Pixar movie amazing? Why is that? You may or may not agree with me, I think they're all amazing. And they all work. Why? Because character A and character B have something that happens to them, and because of that something happens, and because of that something happens, and because of that something happens, and because of that something happens until eventually they reach a climax, which involves a major transformation of some sort. All Pixar movies work like this. You will never watch Finding Nemo the same way again. Okay? Here you have the central question, right, of the story is posed somewhere around here towards the beginning. And then you have your climax happens somewhere here at the very top of the tension arc, right? And then you have your steps of rising tension. Mandy had this test. Maybe she was going to fail. She could have failed. Events were happening to Mandy along the way until eventually our central question was answered. Mandy passed, right? So what happens to Mandy now, now that she's passed her test? Where is she going to go? Mandy gets to go and find landmines, right? That's what happens. This is the resolution of the story that happens after the climax. These are the consequences of the climax. And then we get to the really interesting part. Every real story, every story that touches people, Every story that humanizes the main character, even in a news story, contains a universal truth or a deeper meaning or whatever you want to call that. And the deeper meaning of the Mandy story could be something like, sometimes things that are small can save our lives. Or sometimes things that we find disgusting, we have a tendency to underestimate their power. I see everyone nodding their heads, or a lot of people nodding their heads. And the reason why you're nodding your heads is every successful universal truth seems right here, in your gut. It touches you here because it is something that almost regardless of your background, your belief system, where you're from, what your religion is, what your philosophy is, that just makes sense. It's human. It's a universal truth. Sometimes when you want to tell a new story, if you start from the point of view of what universal truth you want to have in your story, that's almost the best place to start. Because that way you know you're guaranteed to reach people. Right? So. And then there's something else. One more part. That one more thing that you need to have in every single successful story, and that is a symbol. And that symbol has to change in meaning at some point in the story. What do you think the symbol was in Mandy's story? Does anybody have an idea? What's the main symbol in Mandy's story? Anybody have an idea? No? Let me ask you a question. You might be a bit of a weird person. I'm sorry I'm focusing in on you. <laughs> How do you feel about rats? I hate them. Did you hate Mandy at the start of the story? Still a rat. <laughs> <laughs> but
But how do you feel about Mandy now? Eating the banana, she looked cute, but she's still a rat. You think Mandy looks cute now? It's still a rat, but but Mandy looks cute now. Right. You were maybe, not to put words in your mouth, kind of grossed out by Mandy at the beginning? Grossed out, you would say. I just really, it's like a, yeah, rat The main question, though, is did your feeling about Mandy change over the course of the story? This one didn't work for her. <laughs> Some people hate rats just too much. <laughs> Did anybody's feeling about Mandy change from the beginning of the story to the end of the story? Here's a nodding head. Yeah, how did you feel about Mandy at the end of the story? No, I, I'm similar to her. I hate rats, but by the end, it was really intimate. And the shots, the really close shots helped because you feel a connection to little Mandy. Do you care about Mandy? What happens to her? Only her, not all rats. Just her, <laughs> just her not all rats. Right. And let me ask you a very important question, probably the most important question for the person who made this piece. Do you care about more about landmine removal? As a result of the story? Yeah. Damn. I don't know, because the focus was so much on, on her, but now, but now I have an insight into landmines more than I did before the... Right. Yeah, so it kind of worked in both ways. Okay. So that's kind of the best you can hope for, because... Why do we make news stories, even make them in the first place? Why, why do we do this? And the answer to that question is because you want to give people some very important knowledge. You want to maybe give them a skill, or maybe you want to change their attitude about something. Now, when we're in the media, we can't reach into people's houses and actually make them do things, right? The best that we can do is be persuasive. And one of the most persuasive things we can do is present them information in a way that makes them care. And that's the reason why you want to tell them a story even when you're doing the news. So um, I said that I was going to, well, we're not there yet. I said that I was going to do um, African stories. And I did partially one, and I had another one I was going to do something about some guy named Oscar Pistorius, which none of you have ever heard of, I'm sure. Um, but I've decided not to do that, and that's because Brexit happened. And uh, it kind of inspired me. So I'm, I'm going to read to you two things. I've got them on my phone. Uh, one is a breaking news story about Brexit, right? And... Uh, trying to make me get wireless. Right. So let me just read to you this first story, and then I'm going to read to you a second version of a similar version of this story uh, done in story form. Uh, so Brexit news. Months of debate has... I'm going to put on my news voice for this, okay? Yeah? Are you ready? Brexit news. Months of debate have finally ended in, Brit ended in Britain's deciding to end their more than four-decade-long stint in the EU. The UK voted to quit the European Union after more than four decades in a stunning rejection of the continent's post-war political and economic order. The pound plunged to the lowest since 1985 and Asian stocks tumbled in one of the most dramatic 24 hours in modern British history. Sterling initially soared after an opinion poll suggested that 52% of voters had backed Remain. That rally evaporated as results started to roll in 
showing that investors and pollsters had miscalculated. At 5.11 a.m. London time, BBC projections showed voters backing leave by 52% to 48%. Okay, I live in Amsterdam in the Netherlands, and I have uh, very many British friends who live there as expats. And as the results rode in, I uh, stayed with a friend of mine, and this is how I tell that same news story for the most part, uh, but in a kind of a different way. Sally clutched a Union Jack in her left hand as she and 100 other British expats took over an Irish pub in the center of Amsterdam to watch the Brexit results come in. Sally moved from Yorkshire four years ago to start a blog about food in Amsterdam. The city's British population had swollen to 50,000 since the UK joined the EU way back in 1973. It seems natural to call myself a European, Sally said. I've been European all my life. I don't know what or even who I'll be come tomorrow if we lose. I won't know where to go. Back to a UK that voted for Brexit? No way. Stay here? I don't know if they'll let me. Sally took a large swallow of her ale from a pint glass as the results trickled in. At midnight, Remain had a big leave. Sally all smiles, waving her Union Jack. The crowds moved, festive. Many beers, consumed. At 2 a.m., Remain and leave neck and neck. Sally has all the nails on her left hand firmly in between her teeth. Beer consumption, stagnant. At 4 a.m., leave in the lead. Sally slumped a little over the bar. Mascara black lines framed her eyes. Her Union Jack now hangs limply from her hand. At 5 a.m., the BBC calls the referendum. 5.11 a.m., the BBC calls the referendum. 52% of voters have chosen to leave the EU. At 5.15 a.m., the pub's been vacated. Sally's Union Jack lies alone in a puddle of beer. It has fallen to half-mast, and it is alone. So, what do you think? Did that more or less tell the same story as the, the news story prior to that? Seeing some nodding heads. Who says no? That's ridiculous, Jonathan. That did not work at all. That's not the news. Nobody? I feel free. Yeah, there we go. Told a different story. With nothing, I mean, I don't care about Asian stock markets, to be honest with me, right? But I, it, it didn't frame it in the, the, the right. macro. As a result, I feel more engaged, but I feel also that I don't know as much. Does that make sense? Yeah. But right. I'd listen again more, but I'd have to listen more to the first version every so often to keep it macro. Right. I think that's a fair criticism. I was aware of that when I was writing it. Because at the same time, I wanted people to be more engaged with what I felt was the more important information, which was the why this mattered and who this affected in real life, right? So the first story was very statistics heavy. And I, like I said, and let me be careful about this. I need to be really careful because some people who do storytelling, they think that telling the news that first way, that's a no-no, you can't do it, right? It's so boring, it's backwards, nobody understands. I don't feel that way. I feel that, that that stuff's important and there's a place for that. But I also feel that if you want to give that kind of a story real depth, if you want people to care, you have to throw in the universal truths 
You have to throw in symbols and you have to tell a story that creates tension and has a climax. So what was, now this is the part where I test myself, right? Didn't I set myself a, a task at the beginning of this that I would come in here and I would teach you how we teach storytelling? What was the central question, sir, this story? Uh, will, um, will I leave at the end? Yeah. Will Britain leave the European Union? And what was the climax of the story, sir? The announcement that we have lived. Right. The announcement. So it's pretty clear, right? There's, you know, there's nothing, no hidden meanings there, right? And what were the steps of increasing tension? I'm coming back. You like to talk. <laughs> no, I was kidding. I was saying her alcohol consumption. And she's sitting at the bar and right. we and right. she's watching the broadcasts going. The change in her alcohol consumption, right? The change, not just her, because she was representative of a lot of people in that place, right? The change in alcohol consumption, rising, rising, rising until we got to there. What was the, what was the consequence of this, right? What was the resolution of the story? Pardon? Now, <laughs> yeah. what the hell's going to happen now? Yeah, but what was the, the? You're right, absolutely right. But what's the resolution of this story, as I as I read it? Huh? Almost flight. Uh, Standing alone. Right. What did that mean? It meant that she was disappointed, but also that, but it was a metaphor for the fact that the UK was standing alone. Exactly. What was the symbol? I think we just answered that question. What was the symbol? The flag. What was the meaning of the flag at the start of the story? Pride. Pride in what? Being proud to be British. British. And at the end of the story, it meant a disappointment. Also pride. Loss of pride. How about abandonment? Disillusion. Here comes the really important question now. Because we figured out all other five parts of what makes a story powerful, even a new story. What's the universal truth to this? And I, I must caution you. A universal truth, if it sounds like it's going to fit on a card that you would send to your grandmother, <laughs> a platitude like that, it's probably not right. That's called the, the Hallmark card test. <laughs> Yeah? Do you have an idea? Um, that sort of what happens in the world, in politics, has deep implications for people? Yeah. Well, that's, that's definitely a truth. But is it the, and it, it's absolutely true, what you're saying, but is it the universal truth? The universal truth is a moment of philosophy. It's a moment of real feeling. Yes, sir? Sometimes things don't work out the way you want them to. Yeah, maybe we can even build on that, right? Sometimes things that you desire with your heart and your soul simply will not happen, and you have to learn to live with it. Yeah? Anybody else have a universal truth, an idea? Yes, ma'am. clearly resonates in my mind is change. Yes. Change is the only constant thing in life. <laughs> So you're saying like the universal truth is the only constant in life is, is change. Yeah. What is that? Plus ça change. Right? Is it anybody else? 
Yes, sir. Not everyone thinks like you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You have to learn to live with the fact that incredibly important things may, in fact, change as a result of the fact that other people think exactly the opposite way. Right? You have to live with those kinds of disappointments. And uh, for the most part, because I want to get, let's, did I do it in 40 minutes? Can I ask you a question? My central question at the start of this talk was, I would teach everybody or almost everybody in this room the six parts of, in the most simplest manner, what makes a powerful story. Have I succeeded? I see a lot of, who said, no, Jonathan, that's a bunch of nonsense. <laughs> who believes that that's, that, that was, yeah? Yes, sir. Sure. We, 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 I think we've actually almost running out of time. But the, my question is, um, the issue of, uh, you know, truth is universal, can be contested. Universality of truth. Uh -huh, that, that, yeah. yeah. I mean, it can be contested. And I'd like to post this uh, example. Right. The Iraqi war, for example. Uh, the Iraqis and the Muslim world, uh, Arab world, had its own version of the truth. The U.S. and the Western world had its own version of the truth. How can you respond to that? Can we have a universal story on that? Yeah. First of all, there's, this is a two-part answer. The first part of the answer is sometimes context absolutely changes the universality of a universal truth. It, it does happen that, that some things are just not universal. That they are... They, I'll give you a perfect example of this. Sometimes when we do our, our, uh, uh, our courses on target audiences, right, we'll show people uh, a Belgian condom ad, right? Oh, no, sorry, not the Belgian condom ad. Uh, uh, yes, no, it's a Belgian condom ad. I am right. And, it's, and it basically is an ad of a little boy who stands in the middle of a supermarket and he starts screaming his head off and the young, handsome, probably, uh, you know, a dad who had no intention of having a kid uh, has to stand there embarrassed by all the other parents look on in judgment, Right? And he feels more and more terrible, more and more terrible, and the kid's screaming and screaming and screaming, and then it says, Badu condoms. <laughs> right? That's the ad, right? So we get a lot of people who come from Africa, and the, the universal truth of that story is, you know, you know, judgment, you know, the judgment of others is sometimes terribly harsh, and it can make a, lead us to make terrible decisions, things like that. And a lot of our African uh, uh, participants in our stories will say, I have no idea what you're talking about. I would have just walked over and smacked the kid. And that way I would have shut him up. Right? Does that make sense to anybody in the room? Perhaps Africans in the room? Does that make any sense? No? No? I've had that said to me by so many people. To the point where I'm thinking, really thinking about not necessarily using that ad anymore. Because it's not so universal. Right? On the other hand, I also believe that... When it comes right down to it, the best universal truths that we use in our stories are the ones that truly are universal because human beings, the things that motivate us, our need for love, our need to feel wanted, right? Our need to feel accepted within our societies. This does not change from society to society. Some things are universal to the human animal and don't change at all. 
So if you can come up with a story that speaks to those kinds of universal truths, then you will have truly powerful stories that speak to anyone, anywhere. Yeah. Any other questions? Oh, we're out of time already. Oh, wait, one more? Just one more. Okay, just one more. Yes, sir. I just want to ask something about, and connects with what you were saying about the uh, totality of the story. Sometimes the story itself is enticing, and um, as a writer, you 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 kind of seduced by that that particular way of telling the story. But right. but obviously, there's there's an amount of detail that you're going to lose that you're going to lose. I suppose it's uh, it's up to the kind of platform that you're writing for. But to what extent are you going to allow yourself to be seduced by that empathetic story? Do you know what I'm saying? Well, you know, uh, uh, there's a great uh, editor I used to work with named Greg Kelly who works for the CBC in Canada. And he used to uh, produce a show that I worked on. And he said to me, never buy by the yard. And what he meant was, you put in all the information that works and no more than that. And if you, you have to cut everything else that's in there, then you have to cut everything else that's in there simply because it doesn't fit the story or it doesn't work in the story. If, you have to sh if it feels like you've shoehorned information in for the sake of doing that, you probably shouldn't do that or you should write a second story is the answer to that question. And with that, I think we have to end, everybody. I'm so grateful you came. Thank you very much. Thank you all.